square fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome, friends, to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. Your host, Steve Fielder, here one more time coming at you through the miracle of Al Gore's internet. We've got a super guest for you today, and I'll be introducing him just in a moment. Uh, I do want to do a little bit of housekeeping here up front to tell you about a couple things. I do still have the book that I wrote, Gone to the Dogs, A Coon Hunter's Journey. Those are available online at stevefielderbooks.com. You can also pick up a logo hat there when you visit the site. Another thing I wanted to tell you about is a little uh, fun thing, a little trivia spin deal that we've got going online on my personal Facebook page. We do try to share it to the Coon Hunting Conversations page and to the Gone to the Dogs podcast page. But what we do each Monday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, we do a spin on the Wheel of Names for those people who have contacted me by private message, through Messenger preferably, and uh, correctly guessed the ant- or answered the question of the week. And that question of the week is taken from that prior week's podcast. So the instructions are all right there on my Facebook page, Stephen with a P-H-F Fielder. I do also, I see that my uh, my backup here today for this podcast, Louie the Dachshund, is on, on guard here apparently. His mother is gone today, so I'm sitting with Louie. So if you hear Louie chiming in from time to time, you know he's just on, on the job, okay? Anyway, I wanted to tell you also about my good friends at DU Hunting Supply, W Supply. They have virtually everything you need for your hounds and for your hunting experiences. Give those guys a shout. Uh, They're online at dusupply.com. Great customer service, great folks. And without them, there would be no Gone to the Dogs podcast. So we appreciate those guys very much. Okay, I've rattled my gums here off subject long enough. It's time to introduce to you a guy that I, I first met, well, a few years ago, I guess when uh, when he first became kind of a public figure here in the sport of, uh, of coon hunting, especially competition. I've got from the great state of Pennsylvania, Corey Groover. How you doing, Corey? I'm doing great, Steve. Pleasure and honor is all mine. Well, buddy, I tell you what, I've wanted to kind of get up with you for a long time, and I think you and I have some some things in common. In fact, just recently, I think you kind of upped the ante on that ca- that charge with uh, a dog that you've gotten, and I'm going to talk to you about that for sure. But uh, as these podcasts go, we usually do a little bio at the start, so those who've been under a rock and haven't been aware of what's going on in the Coonhound world, uh, don't know who Corey Groover is. Give us a little bio, Corey, bio, a little bio, Corey, about yourself and, and your involvement with, with hunting. 
Well, Steve, I don't know if I can help you with any bayous, but, uh, <laughs> but I can certainly uh, fill the folks in on who I am. Uh, my name's Corey Groover, and like Steve said, I'm from the, the great state of Pennsylvania. Um, I've been a longtime coon hunter, um, and you know, just interestingly enough, I, I had the opportunity at a young age to go and work for the United Kennel Club. Um, I did that for several years, and um, you know, kind of decided to give that up in lieu of starting a family and uh, and going that route with my life. Um, I am married now uh, to my beautiful wife Kayla, and we have a and just the most amazing daughter in the world. Her name's El- Eliana Joyce Groover, and um, we are just making the, making our way in the world and uh, trying to do it with coonhounds at the same time. So that's. All I can really think to uh, tell you about me, honestly. So, well, we want to know how old you are. Twenty nine years old. Twenty nine. My buddy yeah. Keston Jesse that I have on the podcast from time to time uh, is twenty eight. So you guys know how to make an old man feel ancient. <laughs> ancient of days. I was, yeah, about, I, you know, I'm, I'm 29 years old, but I think I feel like I'm 49, to be <laughs> honest with you, some days, especially with a house full of women. So, oh my, yeah, well, it doesn't get better. I'm sorry, Corey. I wish <laughs> I could, uh, I, I wish I could tell you it, it gets better with age, but, uh, but anyway, it is what it is, and it beats the alternative, as they say. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to take the bait and and run with it just a little bit there. You mentioned about the fact that you worked at UKC, and uh, I did as well, as you know. Uh, For me, it was a few years earlier than you. What year did you go to work for UKC? I went to work for UKC uh, in 2014, and I I, uh, departed from Michigan and, and uh, the United Kennel Club, uh, probably about mid 2016. So I wasn't there very long. Um, but I'll tell you what, man, <laughs> a lot of stuff happened in that amount of time. I, I've got some <laughs> great memories from working there. So. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have guys come up to me at the hunts and all and say, Fielder, you got the best job in the world. And I said, Well, I do have a good job and I like my job. But <laughs> you're seeing me out here sitting on the tailgate on the weekend or sitting behind the desk here uh, pushing magazines or answering your questions, and uh, you come and be with me on Monday morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sit, yeah, Monday sit in the morning. chair beside me, put on a headset <laughs> or put a phone up to your ear <laughs> and yes, see sir. how you like me now. <laughs> There weren't too many people that called in that were in a good mood on Monday morning. I can I can attest to that. <laughs> yeah, the boys get out and play on Saturday night, and unfortunately, they create all kinds of situations. And sure. uh, and I always called it job security, but man, I go home some days at, with a cauliflower ear from that phone. <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys wised up and got headsets and all that. Back in the day, we just had an old receiver on a phone, you know, hold that thing with uh, with your shoulder and write notes. I've always been a guy that had to take a lot of notes about everything. People would sure. say, you got a great memory. I said, no, I write everything down. 
Yeah. So I don't forget. And uh, yeah, well, it, it's an interesting job. It's kind of an, a one of a kind job. You know, if you get on an airplane and you sit beside somebody and you start talking, they ask you what you do. It's it's kind of hard to explain it in a way. The thing I used to do, I said, well, it's kind of like working for the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles. You go out and buy a new car, they give you a temporary license plate, and they say you can drive for 30 days on it. And then you have to go get the thing registered in your name and pay the fees. I said, same thing with dogs. You sure. know, you buy a puppy and you get a, a a puppy certificate. But if you want to do anything with that puppy, like eventually breed it or enter it in shows or hunts, you're going to have to get it permanently registered in your name. And so that's how we why we make our how we make our money, and I would tell them, you know, it's kind of a, it's a three legged stool is what it is. We have publications, we have events, and we have registration, and each one works off the other. And through that way, I kind of got you know uh, vague, and they you know by then they're nodding off. And sure, <laughs> but you know the uh, crazy thing about that, Corey, was uh, so many people that I spoke to like that would say, you know, I I went coon hunting once with my uncle, or when I was a kid on my grandpa's farm, or we had a guy that worked with us that had dogs. You know, the coon hunting's really uh, wide spread across the country did you experience that in talking to people um, yeah you know i think i think that i've even experienced that just as a coon hunter myself um, yeah. i think that you know there was a time and a place um in in the sports history where uh maybe it wasn't as concentrated of a flow of people involved with it you know you, mm -hmm. a lot of people had coon dogs in their backyards and um, you know, maybe they coon hunted with buddies on the weekends, but they weren't uh, a part of the sport per se, or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, took, uh, took the initiative to join their local clubs or anything like that. But yeah, I, I can say I had, a, you know, I've had very similar experiences in my life. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's turn back the clock a little bit. Was your growing up, uh, a hunting experience or did that come later on for you? Well, I don't think that my uh, my origin stories are, are unique or different from anybody else's. Um, I was very fortunate that I had a grandfather that was involved mm. with the sport and enjoyed coon hunting. Um, and he's he was always a dog man his entire life. Before he had coon hounds, uh, he raised beagles. Mm. And uh, actually, I have a photo here you would probably like that I found. Uh, the earliest photo I have of him with any of his hunting dogs is uh, dated from 1956 and it's just a little black and white polaroid photo with him and some of his relatives and in the photo there's uh, a pair of fine looking beagles and uh, they're holding up two gray foxes because we had a lot hmm. of gray foxes in, in pennsylvania back in the day and, um you know obviously fur values were pretty good back then so that that's kind of a unique picture i have that i I cherish to this day, but, uh, you know, I, I started out in life. I had a passion for dogs. Um, you know, I was very, very much into them. Unfortunately, uh, my growing up years, I wasn't allowed to have a dog and that was not because of, 
uh, anything my parents had to do with it, but I had a brother that had a very severe allergy to dogs. Um, so that, that kind of inhibited me from ever having a dog at a young age, but I certainly, you know, coon hunted with my grandpa, you know, as, as much and as often as I could. Um, unfortunately he passed away when I was fairly young. He passed away when I was about eight years old. And luckily for me, my grandmother, who just actually recently passed away, mm, uh, I'm she, sorry. Oh, I appreciate that. She was actually very affluent in getting me into the sport. And that was because she made the decision to keep the dogs that my grandpa had when he passed away. And she took care of them all the years that they lived, um, you know, past my grandfather. And uh, the very first dog that, that I owned and that I hunted with uh, on my own was actually one of his dogs. So oh. it was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, you know, there's an old book. I I try to collect hound hunting books. I'm sure I don't have the most complete library. I I don't know if you've ever been down to David McKee's place in South Carolina. He's got a, a room that's actually converted to a library with shelf, wall shelves all around. And he's got a ton of hound hunting books. But there's oh an old gosh. one called The American Trail Hound by Fred Strever. It was published in 1948. Did you do you have that or have any I don't from, have yeah. I don't have that one. I'm kind of like you. I like collecting the old old books, but yeah. I don't have that one. Yeah. Well, this one kind of really covers a wide range of subjects, but when you talked about fox hunting and all and you know, uh, the our coon hounds uh not only did they, most of them come from the foxhounds that that came here from England and France, uh, but, you know, a lot of the early hunters in this country hunted fox and then coon with the same dogs. So it's yeah. kind of interesting. And our friend uh, uh, Jason Doobie that works at W Hunting Supply and lives in Oregon, uh, he runs fox with his blue ticks, and that's primarily wow. what he hunts. You know, wow. so and and they do tree them occasionally and so forth. But anyway, that's that's a rabbit path. Uh, but that that's good. That's interesting. And uh, I think we all have a foundation, you know, in the sport of some kind. Although I know that there are guys out there that that will tell you that they learned the sport from one of their maybe high school or grade school. A classmates, you know, or somebody introduced them to the sport. Was it love at first sight for you? I mean, when you got involved with the dogs? Yeah, you know, uh, it was it was a long process for me. I would say, uh, you know, I was kind of un, my my typical characteristic is like unbridled enthusiasm, you know, for, <laughs> for things that I'm interested in. So, yeah. you know, I probably drove my parents nuts growing up you know, and wanting a dog and, and mm -hmm. always, uh, trying to interact with anybody's dogs that I could. But, um, my, my father is actually, he is a nuclear engineer and, uh, okay. for a small stint after my grandfather passed away, we had to move to North Carolina and we relocated to the Raleigh area and my uh, old stomping grounds. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say back from your AKC. Days, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. 
So, uh, you know, I kind of got involved with dogs down there. My parents started taking me to some confirmation shows and stuff just to get me out and around dogs. And, and I, uh, started to participate in network with people and I, I showed in junior showmanship a little bit. And, uh, but fast forward a couple of years past that, uh, we ended up moving back to Pennsylvania and my grandma, this had been about five or six years had gone by, uh, since my grandpa had passed away. My grandma still had his coon dogs and she was still taking care of them. Oh, wow. That's good. And, and, uh, fortunately enough for me, my grandpa had this little dog and, uh, she was about six or seven years old at that time. And, um, her name was Rascal and Rascal was a blue tick and she was mm. uh, actually a granddaughter to, uh, the infamous, uh, cause of spare time spanky. Oh, be darned. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and that was the dog that started it all for me. I, I kind of took it upon myself to start taking care of the dogs for my grandma cause she was getting older. And, uh, you know, one night my dad and I just decided, Hey, we're going to take these dogs out and we're going to go try to tree a couple coons with them. You know, I was at the age where I was starting to get interested in hunting and it was a good excuse for me to mess with dogs. And, uh, and that's how it all started. Well, you were fortunate to live in a state where coon are fairly plentiful. Uh, you're in Greenville? Greenville, Pennsylvania, okay. about an hour north of Pittsburgh. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I get up there to Catanning. How far are you from there? Uh, Catanning's a good ways from me yet. Uh, you know, this is kind of uh, Lone Pine country up in yeah. here. You know, yeah. if you go to a competition hunt, you're going to be competing against a Lone Pine dog somewhere along the lines. and. Yeah. You know, obviously Randy's in Catanning there. And I would say Randy's still about uh, 45 minutes to an hour okay. from me. So, is the terrain where you hunt um, more flat? I know it's kind of hilly where Randy is. Yeah, we are flat. We, mm -hmm. this okay. is, uh, we live in uh, kind of the latter half of the Allegheny Plateau. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we have, Big timber and small isolated farm country, and it's just perfect for raccoons. Well, you know, when I was young man and involved in our club there in southern West Virginia, raccoons were very scarce. So we had mm -hmm. to import coons and release them, kind of a restocking program. The, the Department of Natural Resources wouldn't help us with it. In fact, if anything, they were a hindrance to our efforts. Sure. We kept trying to get them to let us go up into the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. In some of the counties where coons are very uh, abundant and trap native coons and bring them back down. Well, we they wouldn't let us do that. So the first coons that we got for our club, I remember when I was very young, uh, came from Meadville, Pennsylvania. There, no was, a, there was a hunter named uh, there was a guy named Paul Hunter uh, that trapped and uh, sold these live coons to us, and we restocked them. And, uh, and that went on for a good long while with really good results. Those coons adapted well to West Virginia. But laws uh, changed and and we were no longer able to do that. We tried getting coons from Florida, and they didn't work well at all. I guess too much difference in the climate, especially the cold weather and wintertime. 
And then about the next best we got came out of West Texas. A guy named sure. Brandstetter uh, would advertise in the magazines, and we would order those coons a hundred or so at a time at a cost of about $20 per raccoon. Wow. And we turned those loose, you know, and admonished the guys not to bother them, which <laughs> that's kind of like telling a kid not to, you know, not to to open that box of candy but don't eat any of it, you know. Hey, don't push the big red button, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Oh, my. Well, listen, um, let's go back and, and talk a little bit about some of the – this was one thing that came to mind, and I mentioned it to you in there in our little bit of, of uh, uh, show prep that we did last night was uh, I know that you've had a lot of different breeds of dogs, uh, and maybe not so many different coonhound breeds, but just different kinds of dogs and all. Uh, yeah. But here in this picture that I see on Facebook on, on your page here, you've got, uh, let's see, four, six, eight, about eight or nine really nice northern raccoon pelts hanging on the side of the the outbuilding there. But you got a walker female, it looks like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know um... – that that kind of uh, I've tried to explain this to people a lot, you know. But as you know, Steve, I'm a young guy um, by by your standards. <laughs> uh, watch and, it now. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's yeah. young by my standards. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and that is honestly that is something I have dealt with since I was a kid. Actually, people don't look very kindly on that, you know. Uh, you know, uh, when you're kind of uh, campaigning a lot of different dogs over the years, and and you're being successful with them, but there but there's no consistency in the breed or whatever. Um, I've gotten a lot of flack for that. You know, a lot of people say, "Oh, he's wishy washy, and and uh, he can't make up his mind. He's always changing his mind." But you know, I think one thing people need to take into consideration is, is uh, you know, my age kind of plays a factor into that. And experience is the best teacher. And I, ever since uh, I've been young, I've had a passion for dogs. I haven't had necessarily a passion for uh, treating walkers or red bones or, or whatever, you know. And, and every dog that comes here has presented new challenges and new opportunities that I, as an enthusiast and as a trainer, have worked to overcome. And I think that every dog that has come here and spent any time, amount of time in my kennel has taught me something. And I think that because of that, I probably have more experience than a lot of guys who have been in the sport a lot longer than me. Well, so that's you, the big reason. Yeah. Do you think those idiosyncrasies there are more breed specific or are they more individually attached to, uh, or, you know, m more individual within the, the given dog in other well, words yeah you know i i you probably would remember this name uh there was a there was an old time red bone guy in, in the red bone breed uh, his name's tom somberg and yes tom mm -hmm. tom was famous uh made famous by t-top rabble rouser and, and the t-top dogs for the most part um very very well known line of red bones uh 
you know, in, in the breed. But Tom, Tom was a very wise man and Tom uh, was very good at sharing advice and wisdom and stuff, even with young people. And I remember him telling me one time when I was extremely young and nobody knew who I was and uh, especially him, he didn't know who I was. You know, he, he shared a piece of wisdom with me and he said, Corey, you need to, you need to remember that every dog that you encounter along the way is an individual and every dog is going to be at a different place uh, whether you're talking about its its hunting ability or uh, you know where it's at in you know regards to training, so he always encouraged me to hey don't don't just try to throw blanket terms over these dogs when you're training them or you're working with them. Um, you need to meet those dogs where they're at, and you need mm-hmm. to make sure that you do the best by them, and not expect them to give you something that they are not able to give. Yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly would agree with that assessment. I was just thinking as you were talking back in the day, there was very little information out in the public about coon hounds. Um, in fact, when I went to the AKC, one of my jobs was to try to educate their judges in the hound group specifically sure. on these these new coming breeds. And that was the number one job I was given when I went to AKC was to bring all, at that time, six of the coonhound breeds into full recognition. And it sure. wasn't easy because you had to deal with the parent clubs from each of those breeds, uh, or, or breeds, established breeds like the black and tan, for instance. Uh, they were afraid of this coonhound, uh, short-eared coonhound wave that was coming and was going to de- destroy all their work. And likewise with the foxhound people, they say they're too, they're, the coonhounds too closely resemble the foxhounds. And yeah, so we had to fight all those battles, but thank, thank, thankfully, can't talk this morning, thankfully I was able to get them all in with a lot of help from a lot of people but um yeah but anyway i I was thinking back as you were talking there when i was young somebody made a lot of money writing books called how to raise and train a beagle how to raise and train a cocker spaniel how 90 percent of the content of those books was the same you know, and then they yeah. would throw in some pictures of the particular breed, you know. So I think you're right. I mean, dogs are dogs. Uh, the the instincts, you know, I'm learning a lot. Uh, my wife is a dachshund person. She loves them. And uh, I'm learning a lot about that breed because we got a puppy about a year and a half ago. Who, who's sure. He's very, very smart, but he's very stubborn. It has to be his way. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. got to be his idea. But then, well, yeah. and it's all about perspective too. Mm-hmm. Perspective's huge because uh, you can you can go about it two ways. Uh, when you're if we're speaking just to dog training, for example, um, you know, there's a macro and there's a micro uh, mm. viewpoint that you can adopt, and uh, and neither on their own are going to suffice in creating any kind of training program or breeding program or, or what, what have you, um, neither of those viewpoints are going to suffice to, to cover the gauntlet of things that you could run into when you're working with these hounds. 
Um, so you need to be flexible. You need to, you need to bounce back and forth between those two viewpoints and, and, and adjust Mm -hmm. as necessary for every individual dog. That's my perspective. Yeah. Well, you know, there are general rules that any dog owner should know, you know, you have to have shelter, clean, dry shelter. You have to have a quality dog food. You have to provide plenty of fresh, clean water. You need to provide shade in the summertime. (laughs) These are all fundamentals that unfortunately a lot of young people, younger uh or new let's say new because i i get a i get flack sometimes for pointing a finger toward younger hunters and we're going to talk about younger hunters here but yes. uh and i don't mean to do that at all i i should use the term uh new or novice hunters regardless of the age sure. uh, you know tend to ask questions like what should i feed a pot well, the same thing you'd feed a walker or a red bone or whatever. A good, complete, and balanced diet that's good for all life stages of that dog, and that's that's probably what you should be feeding. But uh, but yeah, there are a lot of questions there that are breed specific, and and you know uh, I, we're going to talk about the plot breed in, in a little bit here uh, specifically because I see that you're kind of dabbling your toe in that pond a little <laughs> bit here. And Don't I'll, say that too loud, Steve. <laughs> I tell you, uh, as you were talking earlier when you said that some people just didn't understand quite why you had different breeds and all that, and why weren't you? Why didn't you settle on one and all? You ought to be a lifelong plot man. Yeah. And then buy a walker dog. Oh, if you really want to know what it's like <laughs> to be a social outcast. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, and you can, working at the United Kennel Club really opened my eyes to this. But, you know, obviously, you know, when you're, when you're kind of uh, new to the sport or you're, not as experienced as the next guy, you know, you kind of, you see the, the uh, levels of differentiation, um, you know, whether you're talking about the plot people or the Walker people or the red bone people, for example, um, you see pleasure hunters and competition hunters, but when you have a chance to look at an event, a coon hunting event or a club event or whatever, from, from a very macro perspective, um, as an administrator or, you know, somebody that's helping conduct the event, you start to see those lines of, of the differentiating characteristics mm-hmm. kind of fade away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's definitely kind of an overarching perspective that should be adopted once you're able to get to that point. Yeah. Well, I always, you know, and you, you being in that uh, position as well, you know, you know, when you, as I began my journey, uh, first as a field rep and then going to work at the registry in 1983 full time. And I think I was there at UKC about 16 years in that full time position and then moved on to PKC. I still, I remained in Michigan during my PKC years, but at any rate, you know, I began to see the uh, the different uh, breed associations and meet the different people. Man, what an awesome experience that was for me. 
yeah. was not only educational, as I learned, you know, but I began to feel the passion that these various groups felt for their dogs, the camaraderie yes. they had amongst among each other, um, and that whole picture. And, you know, that contributed tremendously to my overall education as a as a, a, a registry employee, someone that was involved in as I came all the way down the road to AKC and they asked me that you need to conduct seminars for all these judges to educate them on all these new breeds. It, it was fairly easy for me to do. I, I just had to go out and network to get the photos that I wanted. But, you know, I basically knew from going to all those, those breed days. I think we've gotten off on a tangent here, but I, I think, you know, I, I really am thankful for that education that yeah. I received. And it was out there, you know, on those weekends, um, you know, at American Red Bone Days or National Blue Tick Days or, or Tree and Walker Breezes and Fancies, wherever it was, you know, there was always a great group of people, number one. Yeah. There was always uh, that same passion for their breed that I had for my breed, which has always been the plot dog. But uh, we're all in this thing together, Corey, as you well know. And yes, I just absolutely. wish, yeah, and I wish that we could understand uh, that, I'll get up on the stump just a minute. That <laughs> bring us all together in one big lump. We're still a very, very small part of the hunting community, and we need every one of us, you know, pulling together when it comes to uh, to protecting the right to to free cast these dogs. Yeah, you know that that's a great point that you bring up. You know the the unity aspect of the sport, and I and I know we're getting off on a tangent, but I I just felt like jumping in here on this. You know the the unity part of the sport is what really makes it pop for people. You know when people can see, um, you know every all the cogs working together to make the machine run. I think that is much more appealing than dealing with one particular breed organization or one particular club your entire life. It really opens your eyes to what's going on in the world and, and in the sport. And I think too much, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be negative, but uh, I think too much um, the people use the sport of coon hunting for identity politics and, uh, and, you know, kind of figuring out mm. who they are and, and, and what they're doing in life and, and it, it, and I only say that because it, it's happened to me, you know, coon hunting became my identity to a certain extent. Mm. And, um, I think that's part of the process. You do have to find your identity as a, as a coon hunter or as a coon hound enthusiast, but that's only a stepping stone to get to the point that you're illustrating for our listeners of becoming part of the whole. You have to you have to define what your part is and then become part of the whole. If you can't make that transition, then you're probably actually detracting from the sport more than you're giving to it. Mm -hmm. And you're also um, greatly reducing your opportunities for enjoyment in the sport Correct. by being, you know, single issue. Sing, you know, hunters as a rule are single issue. Uh, 
individuals. You know, if you're a bow hunter, then you don't want people shooting deers with guns. Or if you're a trapper, you don't want coon hunters treeing coons. Or, you know, I mean, we just tend, tend to do that. Whatever we've chosen to be our way, you know, maybe I'm a training wheels guy and you're a recurve guy when it comes to bow hunting or what, whatever. You know, we tend to divide each other, and and uh, yeah. that's what makes me so furious. And I won't get into politics on this podcast, but <laughs> it makes me so fur- furious as I see individuals in this country trying to divide us instead of bringing us together. And, Correct. Uh, and that's what I want to be in the sport of hound hunting is a guy yeah. that says, come on, guys, we all got the common interest, you know. We all yeah. love the, these dogs. We all love the outdoors. We love the competition of it, or we just love the thrill of the, of the chase or listening to the hound or, or, or looking up and seeing those eyes looking down. And, you know, let's all get in the, in the uh, harness here together, and let's pull yeah. together and pull this thing through. Well, we got on to, um, to uh, a nice little speech there for our people out there that uh, maybe want to be, you know, loners. We talk a lot about deep and lonely coonhounds, but we really need to be pack animals in this, in this instance. You hit the nail on the head, Steve. My (laughs) goodness. I can't believe you just killed two birds with one stone, but you sure did. There's a lot of deep and lonely hunters out there, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, just as much as there are, coonhounds and you know uh, and i i guess i can i can kind of fall i've fallen into that camp before where you know uh i like to do things on my own and i you know uh, I, mm-hmm. I hunt probably more than half of the time by myself and you know and i think my ideas are best and you know i don't <laughs> sometimes i don't take uh, constructive criticism well but you know, it, but like I said, you know, there's a, there's a bigger overarching perspective here that we mm-hmm. need to adopt and that we need to come together and adopt for sure. Well, you know, and I'm thinking as you're talking there, you know, I was a guy that largely hunted by himself, especially all those Michigan years. You yeah. Know, I, I had great hunting. I had a lot of spots to go to. And, you know, as I was training a young dog, you get this mindset of, well, you know, this dog needs to be singled out. So, you know, I need to hunt him by himself. And then, you know, you get into to hide season. I never was a big hide hunter, but when they were worth 20 bucks or so, I kind of like to skin those things. And I'd like to take yeah. them to the fur buyer. <laughs> and I oh, like yeah. that check I had in my pocket when I, when I left. And so I'd say, well, I'll just go by myself because I know this such and such a woods. I may catch, you know, three or four in there tonight. So yeah. you become kind of, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in the bigger picture, then you got to go down and pay that dues to the local club. You know, sure. you got to join your state association. You got to kind of be counted, you know, because that's the first thing that's going to happen when you get into a fight. And they're going to want to know what kind of numbers you got. How many people do you represent? Is this, yeah, I hear you, Corey. You got a good, you got a good position there, but how many people agree with you? 
Well, I belong to the Michigan United Coon Hunters Association or the Michigan Hunting Dog Federation. We're X number of hundred members strong, and this is our unified position, you know. So, yeah. Well, if we were going to put a name to these overarch this overarching perspective that we keep talking about, it's simply stewardship, right? So we are to be stewards of our sport irregardless of how we participate in it. You know, whether I'm a, a plot man that just pleasure hunts on the weekends or I'm a competition coon hunter and I'm hunting at the tournament of champions, you know, um, mm-hmm. there are many facets to this sport, but the ultimate goal is stewardship. And part of being a good steward in anything is maintaining relationships, Right. So we want, we want to, as much as we like to hunt by ourselves and as much as we may think that our dogs need to be singled out, um, we need to to come together and we need to hunt with our local guys and we need to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, show up to help run the water race at the local club, you know? Um, you can't, you can't expect to be a good steward without, having relationships exactly well i guess the word to to our listeners out there today Corey, is just think of ways you know that you can kind of incorporate the other guys in your community into your activities you you yours you know have a have a cookout and say okay and we'll go have a little buddy hunt afterwards or we'll go to the club you know and and participate in a cleanup day or or uh whatever just just to pay back, you know, to the sport, pay it forward, actually. And that's, I guess I'm going to use that as a segue into what you and I think was the core thing that we wanted to talk about today, or at least I did, is, you know, our activities going forward with the youth and our sport. And, you know, I, over the years, I've always, always wanted to be supportive of youth activities. I remember back in my day, there was no such thing as a youth cast. When I first yeah. went out to a night hunt, begged my dad to take me before I was old enough to drive, I was thrown to the wolves because there were no youth casts. And, you know, I had to go out there and call my dog and pull up my big boys, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and learn, you know, the guys talk about now about going out and learning those $30 lessons, you know, well, they weren't $30 when I was a kid, but they were still lessons. <laughs> yeah. I, I learned yeah. several of them, you know, expensive ones at that, you know? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, well, I was active. Know, oh, go ahead, Corey. Oh, I, I was just going to say, you know, I have been involved, I've been fortunate enough to be involved with different youth programs and kind of uh, helping instruct youth in the way they should go as far as uh, an introduction to the sport of coon hunting. I think there's a very important delineation we need to make right off the bat for listeners. Um, You know, there's a difference in you getting the youth involved and there's a difference in introducing people to the sport. And my major hang up with everything is yes, I love working with the youth and I love kids and I love being able to share my passion with kids. Um, you know, as far as working with coonhounds, but if we're looking at this overarching principle of stewardship, 
children are not the only people that we should be trying uh, to reach out to, you know, to, to bring into the sport. And I get really frustrated when people say coon hunting is a dying sport because coon hunting is not a dying sport. If we have these hundred thousand entry, you know, hundred thousand dollar entry hunts that, you know, like tournament of champions or, or whatever hunt you will, and they're, and they're filling their entry lists and, there's people that are demanding media coverage of it and all that kind of stuff. Um, no, there, there isn't a short supply of coon hunters out there. Um, so we, we really need to kind of open the scope when we have the conversations about youth to in, incorporate the 40 year old men that live next door that, Hey, I'd like to go coon hunting or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Make it, uh... Uh, and and I've done a bit of that through my church back in Michigan, and we would have wild game suppers and things like that, and I'd always invite guys. And it was always fun when somebody went coon hunting with me that had never been before. And I usually I would always say, you know, uh, well, you're, you're going to be the shooter, you know. <laughs> so and that, and that appealed to them because you know people like to kill stuff, <laughs> you know. If sure. if you're uh, and uh, and so I would have you know various ones. Now, very few of them really got the bug to want to get hounds and make that commitment. And of course, they were married and had jobs and and all like that. But I I did try to take people as often as I could that had never been before, you know, and show them what the sport's about. And that's, that's a lot of fun too. So do you have a good story about something like that you'd like to share? Or? <laughs> well, I, I, it's probably more, well, yeah, a couple, um, had a guy named Scott that was, uh, there in our community and he was going into the Navy. He became a Lieutenant, I guess it is, uh, in the Navy. And I learned later on that he uh, moved to Florida after he got out of the Navy. And I got a phone call one time when I was with uh, AKC, I believe, yeah. And uh, it was his daughter, and she was the uh, the editor for an RV uh, manufacturing magazine. And they like to do little colorful stories about around the country. And she says, I remember when you took my dad coon hunting sometimes, and I thought you'd be the great guy to write this story about the coon hound cemetery. We heard about that. And also it's a crazy world. But this one night we had gone out there, and uh, uh, if you know uh, the area, Corey, around Bankson Lake out uh it's it's west of town, out in the Lawton area there from Kalamazoo. Sure, and I yep. took took Scott Love to go coon hunting. He he had no dogs. I uh, had really didn't have a place for dogs, but he loved to go with me. So this one particular night, the hunt had had been either really good or really bad, and I don't remember which. But we were about two o'clock in the morning coming home. Oh, so, so I, uh, would come in through the garage and go downstairs and take all my hunting stuff off and all, you know, before I came upstairs, had a shower or whatever was, I was coming in the door. I heard the phone ring 
And I heard my wife pick up the phone in the bedroom and say, yeah, Steve just got here. Um, no, I don't know what happened. I, I usually don't. <laughs> but he, I'm sure that Scott's on the way home. <laughs> and his wife was just terrified that something had happened, that he was dead. We didn't have cell phones at that time, that he was dead or worse. (laughs) So that was kind of a funny thing. I got a lot of laughs with Scott over that about uh, his wife giving him a hard time, you know, for being out late with the coon hunter. So that's just just one facet. And then another, but a, a funnier story than that was we would, we had a group when my son was growing up in the church that was very much like Boy Scouts, but we called it Royal Rangers. And it was patterned very much after a scouting program, but had some uh, religious teaching along with it. And sure. uh, so... These these meetings would happen on Wednesday night, and the parents would be in a Bible study or whatever in one part of the church, and and the boys, you know, would be in a classroom setting in in the uh, Christian school there. So anyway, I'd say, okay, guys, we're going to go coon hunting next Wednesday. Okay, so bring your boots and some warm clothing, and it was October, early part of the year. And uh, we're going to go coon hunting. So I had a group of probably seven or eight kids that I would say were probably around 10 years old, 10, 11, something like that. My son being one of them. Of course, he had been many times. So anyway, we got to a little uh, area, a little game area there between Schoolcraft and Kalamazoo, uh, Gordonette Lake, I think it's called. And we had an older fellow that guided us in there right from his house. And we went and we we killed, uh, we treed these coon, and there were three coons up this tree. And the old fellow wanted to do the shooting. So I said, well, be careful now and pick out one and just shoot one, okay? So he shoots and misses, and then you hear a hit, and then a miss, and then a hit, and... And after a while, a coon falls out. So the kids were all excited about seeing the coon and the dogs woolling the coon and all that. So then while we're doing that, trying to get the dogs away, here another one falls out. And long story short, all three of those coons fell out of that tree. Oh, boy. He had hit all of them. (laughs) And now... Okay, it's getting time. Now, the parents are going to pick up their kids at the close of the service, so we only had about an hour or so to be out there. So I got to gather up all these kids, and I got these three coons, and I put them in the back of my, I have one of these old canvas Bauer coon coats. It's got a huge uh, game bag on it. So I get all those in there, and I'm all stooped over like you've seen the paintings of these old men carrying a whole load of sticks for firewood. Well, that's what I look like, stooped over going to the truck. (laughs) When I got to the truck, I just kind of wiggled my arms out from that coat and let it drop to the ground, and I felt like I was going to take off like a rocket right up through the air. (laughs) (laughs) I felt so light. But, okay, here's the other part. So they had a big time with that. 
really enjoyed it. I said, okay, so next week, guys, we're going, I'm going to show you how to skin a coon and prepare the pelt for the fur buyer. And so the next week, I took a, a whole one of those coons whole out of the freezer, had it all thawed out. We took it, and I started skinning this coon. And one of those kids totally lost his dinner. Oh, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so, but anyway, the the other, of course, the other kids got some fun out of that. They thought that was that was great. But, sure. yeah, that's just some of those kind of experiences that came out of taking novices coon hunting. And there and there's others. But uh, yeah, how about you? That's all, well, you know, uh, the only one that really uh, jumps to my mind immediately, uh, it actually included my wife. So um, I had a friend that I uh, that I got into coon hunting and he, he had enjoyed it so much that he had gotten himself a coon dog and. And we were hunting pretty religiously together uh, most nights. And and this guy had a cousin that uh, he was, I can't remember what branch of the military he had been in, but he was a, he was a vet of some kind of a younger vet. And he had actually done some work, um, I think as a sniper. He oh. wasn't, he was a, he was a crack shot man. Oh, yeah. That guy was half nuts because whenever he came to visit, <laughs> us up here in Pennsylvania, he wanted to go hunt. He wanted to go kill something. So, uh, you know, we kept telling him every time he was up, you need to go coon hunting with us. You need to go coon hunting with us. Well, we finally talked him into it one night. And for whatever reason, my buddy couldn't go with me. So my wife decided to tag along with, with me and this guy named Joey. And, uh, and we set out and I took, you know, both of them, my wife had had experience coon hunting prior to this. Mm. Um, but she had never really taken part in harvesting the raccoons and stuff like right. that. So I said, well, tonight our goal is we're going to, we're going to tree a coon for each of you and each of you are going to get to shoot a coon out. That was our goal. So I packed up a little dog, a little red bone female I had here. She was a grand night female named locked and loaded pebble. And we took pebble to the woods and, and pebble made short work on a coon. She, I think she caught it on the ground and, and just ran it up this little bean pole of a tree. Mm. And we got in there and it, it looked like a, uh, you know, a Tootsie Pop, you know, the coon <laughs> was up <laughs> yeah. there all balled up, up at the top of it. And, uh, you know, Joey and I talked about it and I said, well, this would probably be a perfect one for my wife to shoot out to, to Pebble. So, um, Pebble, she was a heck of a dog. She, she was, uh, she was the kind of dog that could easily take care of a coon on the ground if you didn't make a good shot, you know? And, um, so I, I got my wife all lined up here and, and pebbles treeing at the bottom of this little tree and the coons kind of swaying back and forth. And, and I told her, I said, okay, honey, I was like, now I don't want you to take the crosshairs off of this coon until, uh, he's dead. So we're going to shoot him, And once pebbles got him, you know, you're good. So my wife had very limited shooting uh, practice prior to this, you know, and she takes a couple shots at this thing and you're just hearing, you're just listening to them whiz by, you know? <laughs> and finally, uh, I think it was like the third or fourth shot. She throws one up through this cone and right, right, right through his midsection. And that sucker come, come down full bore alive. And, 
he landed right on top of Pebble and just folded on her like a like a house of cards. I mean, she <laughs> he was all over her. And it, it it was in the confusion and the excitement of that moment. I'm I'm kind of going back and forth between do I grab the gun off my wife and, and go help my dog, or do I you know uh, go get my dog and then help my wife? My wife made that decision for me pretty quickly because her she never took her eyes off of that coon, but she had the crosshairs right on my dog. She dropped that <laughs> gun and she racked another shell and she was ready to go. Oh and I'm my. like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. No. So uh, we always no joke collateral her. damage here, please. Exactly. Yeah, we we joke around with her to this day that she yeah. almost killed my dog that night. But uh. Uh, but back to this uh, this vet that I took hunting. Um, the very next drop, my wife stayed at the truck, and Joey and I went and we took Pebble to another woods, and and Pebble had gotten through the country, and she had gotten treed right behind this this huge mansion of a house. I mean, it's all lit up. They're having a dinner party in there and she's just out in the back 40, just blowing it down. And, uh, I didn't exactly have permission to be where I was at, but I was going to go get my dog. And I told Joey, I said, you know, Joey, I'm sorry. Um, I'm just going to go grab her and we're going to get out of there because I don't have permission to be here. Um, so we'll have to try to tree another coon somewhere. Well, we get into the tree and here Pebble is treed in a hedgerow and there's fields on either side of her. And, uh, it's a full moon night and you can see that coon just perfectly up at the top of that tree. And mm -hmm. Joey goes in there and Joey's eyes just turn red. You know, he goes into <laughs> kill mode and Joey said, listen, he said, put, when I tell you to turn your light on and put it right on that coon. And he said, and as soon as you get that light on that coon, shut your light out. I said, okay, all right, Joey, I'll do what you want to do here. You know, <laughs> you're the one with the gun. Uh, so I did just that. I got back in that field a little bit and I turned on my light real quick and I turned it off. And as soon as I turned that light off, that 22 cracked and that coon dropped like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was just blown. And nobody in the house knew the better of what was going on yeah, out back. Yeah, you know? yeah. It was just amazing to see that, <laughs> that, 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 that in action, you know, and so there you so proud of that. Team. Yeah. So there you have it, folks, the gone to the dog podcast for more tips, contact Corey Groover in Greenville's Pennsylvania. Uh, he will put you in touch with a retired Navy SEAL, uh, or <laughs> Green Beret, <laughs> just oh, another service for my listeners. That's an incredible story, Corey. Yeah, <laughs> it really yeah. Is. yeah, it's one of my favorites. I mm. saw a picture from that night, actually. So, well, you know, I'll, I'll tell this, and the, the old saying, I think it was Yogi Bear or one of those ball players said, It ain't bragging if you can do it. Oh, yeah. uh, th there is a, some of my listeners will remember this, and maybe you've seen one or others uh, will remember them. There was a gun made called a Bronco. Okay. And it had an all metal frame. Oh, wow. it, it did not have any wood on it at all, and it was small. And I'm trying to think there was an, a, a popular company as brand was on that. I can't remember, but I had one. And what it came apart. You just twisted it, and the barrel was in one hand, and the stock and the, the 
the receiver part was all on the other hand. Very, very about as simple as you could possibly make a gun. Okay. Yeah. So I would carry that thing with me when guys would come up to hunt. And uh, I could, I don't know what it was about that gun and me, but it was just like an extension of my finger. You know, if I, <laughs> if I pointed that little gun, but it was funny, it was, it was old and it didn't fit together just right. So you had to kind of twist it and hold tension on it while you, you know, while you're uh, getting ready to shoot. And it had a safety on it. But, man, yeah, I could just knock the eye out of one with that thing. And guys would say, how in the world are you hitting a gun with that thing? I said, just, just, you know, just the crack shot, I guess. (laughs) You know, it's amazing that when you get comfortable with a particular twenty-two rifle, Mm -hmm. how deadly you can be with Yeah, yeah. And I had one, and, and listeners out there, if you can help me with this, I just happen to think of this. When the Nylon 66 patent expired with Remington, a company called FIE uh, in Brazil, or at least that the guns were made in Brazil, and a company by the name of FIE sold them in the States, they created a copy of the Nylon 66, and it had a plastic stock. It looked just like a Nylon 66. I bought one in a Meyer supermarket there in Kalamazoo for, I think it was about $60. I coon hunted that with that thing for over 20 years. It was a tremendous gun, open sights, lightweight, but I dropped it so many times or sat it up against the pickup and let it fall in cold weather that the stock was just all cracked and I had it electrical taped, you know, black tape all over that thing to hold it together. And I still have all the action, but, man, what a good shooting gun that was. If anybody out there has, has had one of those, has one you want to get rid of or knows where I can get a stock, for that thing, send me a <laughs> message, Stephen F. Fielder. I love that old gun. Do you have a favorite, Corey? You know, I I do. It's nobody else's favorite, but it's definitely mine. Um, when so when I was a kid, um, you know, talk, you know, kind of going back to when we were talking about the deep and lonely coonhounds and the deep and lonely hunters, you know. Um, when I was a kid, there was a group of us that would get together religiously weekdays and weekends, and we called ourselves the crew. And uh, it constituted about seven or eight different guys. And we would all go and we would turn all of our dogs loose at the same time for mm-hmm. the most part. I mean, mm-hmm. usually we had four or five, six dogs going out uh, to treat coons. So we were big pack hunters, you know, a couple <laughs> dogs would get a couple dogs would get split here and there, you know, randomly, but, but anyways, uh, so that group, my, my buddy Todd Turner started that group. Uh, he was the president of our club at that time. And we all just kind of hunted together, you know, and, uh, I got so, the name Todd Turner and the Motley crew. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that was probably a better title for it, you know, <laughs> but, uh, so my grandpa had this gun that he coon hunted with religiously. And what it was, was it was an old Sears and Roebuck 22 long rifle. 
Mm-hmm. And what he had done was he had he had cut the stock off of this gun and made it like a pistol grip. Right. He had left the barrel intact. So this thing had probably a 20 foot barrel on mm-hmm. it and, and just a little pistol pistol grip. And on the side of that gun, uh, he had inscribed on it little Billy and <laughs> little Billy was the most inaccurate 22 rifle to ever try <laughs> to take coon hunting. And, and I insisted on hunting with it because it was my grandpa's 22 rifle. Yeah, and man, you know, inevitably hunting with that many guys, you always had two or three twenty twos, you know, and then mm-hmm. two or three shooters around to to pop a coon out. And man, when people saw me bring little Billy, they put their hard hats on and they uh, and they started walking <laughs> back to the truck. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I probably had a better chance of cutting that tree down with an axe to get the coon than, oh, my goodness. than anything with little Billy. Yeah. But you know. That was always a fun, fun yeah. story. So. Well, you know that a gun like that. There's an old plot breeder that was an old man when I was a kid, and his name was Isaiah Kid, and yeah. he's the the guy that the plot association uh, named their three night high scoring dog award at plot days each year, the Isaiah Kid Award. Well I yeah, heard it he's with, like the Martin Luther of your breed. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah. And he uh but he had a twenty two uh uh cut just like you're mentioning. It it was okay. cut to, it, he cut the stock off so it was just a pistol grip, but it still had the long barrel. And he had two loops sewn on his hunting coat. One up just behind his neck and one down about his waist. And he would stick that gun down through those loops so it ran, it, he carried it right between his shoulder blades. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that, I remember that so well. It's just the things that we remember over the years, you know. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I'm sure we could go back and forth about all kinds of different stories. Well, let's talk about, all right. We talked. I don't know if I really – we might have left some chicken on the bone on that discussion about um, about these different breeds and why, you know, you haven't really settled on one. You you kind of – well, you mentioned red bone. I know that you've had walkers. Uh, what what breeds have you had as far as uh, coon hounds? Well, Steve, you know, uh, you, you mentioned it earlier. I've got a new project here at the house and, um, you know, this past fall, I didn't get to really coon hunt a whole lot because I was having some health issues that I think we've gotten kind of resolved now. And, um, and I had, and unfortunately I had sold, I had two really nice Walker, uh, Walker pups that I Mm -hmm. sold, um, you know, just prior to the season, because I didn't want them to sit, you know, all season long, I wanted them to get hunted. So I just went ahead and sold them. But, um, the little dog that I have here now is actually a plot hound. And, uh, she comes from a good friend of mine named Keith Pierce, who is a long time plot man here in Pennsylvania. And yeah. I did not plan on getting her. I didn't, I didn't even have a plot hound on my radar. Um, but Keith called me and he said, Hey, I need to put this dog somewhere. And I, you know, I'd like you to have her. Um, so that's how I ended up with her. But I call this little dog river bottom Goldie and mm-hmm. Goldie, um, makes the sixth coonhound breed that I have owned to this day. Um, I've owned a lot of other different breeds of dog, uh, outside of coonhounds. 
you know, uh, I'm quite the squirrel hunter when I'm given the opportunity. So I've had quite a few different types of squirrel dogs too. But in, in regard to coon hounds, he makes the sixth breed. Uh, the only one that I'm missing is the American leopard hound. Right. Well, I've hunted with leopards uh, back when they were still called leopard curs. Uh, sure. There was a breeder named Richard McDuffie in North Carolina that bred them. He later moved to South Carolina. Cur uh, people will recognize that name. And they these dogs were bear dogs, but I never owned uh, a cur dog as a – I mean a, a leopard dog as a tree dog. But, uh, you know, in all the years that I've been involved in coon hounds um, – I've honestly only owned two breeds, and wow. that was the Plots and the Walker. Yeah. And I've only yeah. owned a handful of Walker dogs, but uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so you, you know that that's kind of that's kind of my shtick. You know, I've I've kind of bounced around the different breeds and stuff like that, and I've had more competition hunting dogs. I've had pleasure dogs. I've had bench dogs. I've had all kinds of different different dogs even within those breeds uh but my goal here um i'm getting ready to turn 30 here soon uh which is crazy uh <laughs> but my go my i told myself when i left ukc and and uh i came back home i was like you know i don't i don't want to give up you know the hunting with dogs and stuff like that even if i get married and, and have kids and stuff but uh you know, I'm going to try everything and get as much experience as I can. And then by the time I turn 30, you know, I'll try to settle down with something. So, uh, who knows you, the listeners out there could be, uh, could be seeing a new plot man in the making here, but I'm not sure about yeah. that yet. to see how she, she does. Well, they are a bit different in ways. Um, they tend to kind of be, I won't say they're one man dogs, but they can they bond with with you pretty well, and they kind of like you know one handler maybe more than others. I've had situations over the years or listened to guys tell about selling a dog to someone and the dog really wouldn't hunt for them or whatever. Plot females, especially what you have, can be a little temperamental at times. They can be a little pouty if they don't. Yeah, you know how dogs get hunt sour. Sure. Uh, and usually, when that happens, I think it's because it's it's like, uh, a, you know, a jealousy thing, uh, you know, or an envy deal. Another dog treats a coon. Well, they're used to treating the coons <laughs> uh, for you at home, so I'm not going to cover that tree which it's fine not to cover but i'm just going to stay out here in the wings and pout you know and i've yeah. seen dogs that with that character i'm not saying that's a blanket trait of a plot hound in no way i'm seeing that but i have seen it and well uh, so steve yeah. you have a lot of you obviously have a lot of experience with this breed you know uh, and you and you've been a lot of places and done a lot of things with them let's talk to some of our listeners who may be uh contemplating purchasing their first plot hound or you know they've they've heard of the breed and, and they're interested in it you know what what's one piece of advice that you would give a new coon hunter that, or even an experienced coon hunter that's wanting to start with the breed i would be interested in hearing what you have to say about it. well the plot breed is a very versatile breed and it's used for a lot of different things 
uh, coon, and the other breeds are, too, at times. But plots more than others, I think. There's an awful lot of big game hunters in the plot breed, primarily bear hunters, and sure. also wild boar hunters. Yep. Um, and, and, of course, coon hunters. But the plot was originally bred to be a big game dog. Yeah. And uh, the plot may not be the most independent dog at times, uh, they they're comfortable working in a pack, and that's how you know they work on a on a, a bad bear on the ground. You know that they harass and harass and and pick and 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 just never shut up or give up until the bear says, "Okay, I'm tired of these stings on my backside. I'm going to go up a tree." Mm-hmm. But the first thing I would advise someone that's considering a plot is find a breeder with a track record for breeding dogs used for the game that you want to hunt. If if you go to a bear hunter and say, I want to pick a puppy from your litter to make an independent go-yonder ambush-type competition dog that can beat these walkers, then you're probably not going to find that in that litter. Sure. Uh, the same t- by the same token, some of the dogs that have continually been bred for coon over the years are not going to be suitable for the guy that requires that athlete on steroids. That dog that'll run a bear, you know, all day and into the night. That will stay on that bay as long as it takes. Uh, you know, I mean, I wrote an article one time for for Coonhound Bloodlines titled "Bear Hunters and Bear Dogs Are Crazy," and <laughs> that's a heck of a title. And it spoke to the fact that they both are absolutely consumed with finding a bear track, running a bear track, and seeing a bear up a tree. Yeah, and they'll run over. As the old saying, a troop and jump over the wall to make that happen, you know. So, um, so that would be my first thing, you know. Find a dog that's bred for the sport that you want to hunt it, because and if it's been, you can look at the pedigree. If there's, if there's four or five generations of Grand Knight champions on that dog's pedigree, or at least sprinkled throughout that pedigree, you know that's a coon bred dog. Yeah. If you're seeing a pedigree that you say, man, I don't recognize any of these dogs, or maybe there's a, a one constant name in there, maybe uh, uh, Laurel Mountain, for instance, Roy Clark, or back in the day, Everett Weems, you know, Weems or Cascade or something, you say, well, this tends to be more of a Barrett-bred dog. So that would, that would be the first thing there. Um, a good example that I can cite is my my partner on this fever dog that we have. Um, we have this uh, 19-month-old plot male, and he's been a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, and I give all the credit to, to two people, to Bill Scheninger in Ohio for breeding him and for uh, my friend and partner Mark Miller for giving him an opportunity to do a lot of different stuff. And sure. so the dog yeah. now is a four-way champion with an HTX, 
He's got wins toward grand. He's got PKC money won. You know, and besides all that, he's won, you know, water races <laughs> like crazy and he treeing contests at Grand American and, and just all kinds of things. APA breed days, he won the Bear and Coon treeing contest and the water race and all this. So he's a, he's a fun, fun dog. But Mark had never had a plot before, although he oh. hunts with a guy, uh, and, uh, uh, Brad, uh, Brad's uh, Hyatt in North Carolina, that has crossbred plots. So, oh, okay. uh, but he, Mark, wanted to try a plot, and that's how I, this puppy, uh, long story short, Bill Schenninger, I owned the female that the pup was out of. And so, anyway, Bill gave me this pup. So, Mark took him, and right away, he says, This dog just beats all for drive and determination. Yeah. And, and, you know, but along with that is excessive kennel barking. You know, if you don't <laughs> get on him, he's going to make your head hurt, you know, barking yeah. in the kennel. Uh, but, <laughs> and ironically, he's tight-mouthed on the ground, <laughs> on, on track. So, you know, but plots were like the utility dog of the Appalachian, Southern Appalachians. You know, they would guard the homestead. They'd go get the cows. They'd tree squirrels and groundhogs. They'd catch possums and coons. They'd run a bear for you. They'd fight a hog. They'd do about anything. They're like an old yeller type dog. Yeah. And back way back in the day, they were not even considered hounds. Wow. That, uh, I had a, a website for a few years there that I ran. It was called plotdogs.com yeah. and had a, a, quite a following with it. But I used a quote from a book called 20 Years Hunting Fishing in the Great Smoky Mountains by Samuel Honeycutt. And he quoted uh, there that they had gone on a particular hunt that day and he was naming all the dogs that they hunted. And he named several dogs, and he said these were all hounds, except uh, uh, Kathy. I can't think of uh, its first name doesn't come to me right now. His dogs were plot dogs. So there was a distinction between the plot and the hound back in that day. Now that's not to say that were they were curs particularly, but they were just considered a different breed. Sure. And so they are kind of different. They're they're uh smart. Uh the ones that I've dealt with, the Hoss dog that I traveled the whole country with, I probably put two hundred thousand miles on that dog in the in the truck. He uh he was the smartest canine I've ever fooled with. He'd pick up things instantly. Training was was a you know, snap with him. So they're smart dogs, they're personable dogs, they're loving dogs, but they're kind of stubborn like the dachshund. Maybe it's the German breeding that's coming through. I never tried well, to you train might be right about that. Yeah. I never tried to train a German short hair. Maybe you have. I don't know if they're stubborn or not. But uh but yeah, I, I don't know. The, Plots come in all all kinds, you know. Some are colder nose than others. Uh, some of them have better mouths than others. 
So there's no real uniformity within the breed to say you get a plot, you're going to get a chop mouth or you're going to get a ball mouth or, you know. But uh, they all hunt, I believe, all the plots that I've had anything to do with, they're game catchers. The reason That's they great. hunt is they want to catch that game. That's great. Well, you heard it here, folks. If if you're interested in trying out a plot and you're a jack of all trades by uh, definition, then you need to check this breed out. Sounds John, like it, anyways. My old buddy John Sturgill in West Virginia coined this phrase: "If you want a coon for the pot, hunt a plot." <laughs> <laughs> And John's oh, had some great ones. Okay, I hear by the grapevine that you and my friend Randy Smith have been invited by the Treen Walker Breeders and Fanciers Association to do a little gig here. It's Actually, it's going to be on the 10th of June, I believe you told me. Yes, sir, it sure is. So I don't know exactly when this podcast will air, so it may be after the fact, but we'll talk about it on social media. Tell me a little bit about that, Corey. So this is a, a UKC Youth Championship event. Um, it's being uh, it's being hosted by the Western Pennsylvania Coon Fox Club out of Parker, Pennsylvania, which they've they've been a pretty affluent club here lately in Pennsylvania with hosting the zones and stuff like that. Um, the event is going to be administered by the uh, Treen Walker Breeders and Fanciers Association. And this event's actually, from what I understand, is being resurrected um, uh, from the last couple. They haven't had the event the last couple of years, and and they're making an effort to bring it back, and they're going to start it down here in Parker. Um, so that's going to be um, a UKC-licensed youth bench show and night hunt for the kids. And uh, Randy Smith and I have been tasked with with approaching the kids and giving a little seminar Um just prior to the event, just to talk about uh, different things pertaining to the events and, and to coon hunting in general. Um, I was very honored to be asked to come down and, and be one of the keynote speakers, and I'm sure Randy feels the same way. Um, and, you know, Randy's just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to everything, uh, you know, from breeding to night hunting and all, all of that stuff in between. You know, who's better to talk to the kids than world champion handler like randy <laughs> so uh i'm looking forward i'll probably sit in on his speech too i don't know if he's going to sit in on mine but uh. <laughs> uh, you know i've kind of interacted with randy some and i've seen you know he he has two sons uh troy yeah. the the elder at 16 in fact he just won the pennsylvania state championship here uh, a, a week or so ago yeah with one of those uh, lone pine walkers that's uh Troy, he's the older boy, and then Cole is two years younger, but he's involved in dirt bike racing. Man, I mean, he's serious into that. But I watched, uh, and there's always kids around Randy's place, okay? Sure. The mm -hmm. friends of the boys, you know, and watching Randy interact with those guys. He's a natural for that sort of thing, so that's good. I'm glad you, they've got him out there and you because you certainly have a lot of experience down that line. Uh, we were talking the other day, just just talking, and when I heard, or I don't know who called who, but we're talking about this plot dog that you have and all that. What are you? 
kind of views about youth and in our sport? Or have we covered that already today or all your thoughts well, on that? I think we were going to, and we went a different direction with it. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've been very fortunate, number one, uh, that I've gotten to work with so many uh, youth and with so many different youth-based events um, kind of in my career of coon hunting. Um, that's been a real treat, and I really enjoy getting to do that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, the the going back to talking about experience, you know, I was kind of raised in the UKC Youth uh, Coon Hound Events Program. Okay. And uh, I started... Uh, I started competing in the youth events uh, probably around the age of 13 or 14. And I Mm -hmm. went the whole way up through the ranks through, uh, you know, doing bench shows and night hunts and stuff like that. I was a little bit more prominent as a, as a bench show guy at that time. Uh, I showed, you know, some very nice quality dogs and Mm -hmm. uh, that were owned by a good friend of mine, Kitty Wolf. And she was kind of my mentor in, in the show ring and, Um, so I have, I have a unique perspective to offer the kids that come to these kinds of events because I've been there and I've done that, you know, and uh, I know what they're experiencing and I know how to help them. And it's, it's just great. I get to be a big kid for the day, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, as a whole, I think that the sport really does a good job with, with the kids. Um, I think to an extent we almost do too good of a job with the kids, you know, uh, a lot, a lot of times the youth events become more about the prizes. Exactly. I'm glad you brought that up because that has been kind of my pet peeve over the years. And I've been guilty of being part of that, but go ahead and expand on that. Yeah. You know, I, I, it might be a personal bias of mine, but you know, you had mentioned earlier about when you were a kid, there weren't youth hunts to go to. And, and right. you you got thrown in with the adults and you got your, your $20 lessons. Well, I was a lot the same way starting out. Um, I did come up through the youth program, but I didn't even know that youth events existed um, until one day at our Coon Hunters Club. Um, one of our club members who was a loyal subscriber to Coonhound Bloodlines, he brought in a couple of old issues and he laid them out on the table there. And, uh, I just happened to pick one up and try to breeze through it as fast as I could. And I, and I looked at the cover of it and it said youth edition and it had uh, pictures from the youth nationals competition. And I think that year was, it would have been the results from the 2007 youth nationals. Mm-hmm. And I was just blown away. I was like, there are events for kids with coonhounds. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I kind of took that magazine home with me and I showed it to my dad and, and my dad, he, he's always been my biggest supporter when it comes to coon hunting. You know, he, he financially backed me, you know, a lot with these dogs when I was a kid and, and he, he would even tag along with me every now and then. And yeah. he was always supportive of me. Mine was too. Yeah. But he is not a coon hunter. <laughs> so okay. spending an entire day traveling to a youth event, you know, was just not up his his alley. And uh, yeah. you know, and back then for me, it 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 was less about going to an event to try to win a light or try to win at all. And it was more about connecting with similar minded people mm-hmm. and kids, right? Kids yeah. of my age that that were interested in coon hunting and 
I made so many lifelong friends and I couldn't even tell you anything about the trophies or the prizes that I won along the way. Yeah. The only one that I remember in particular was the first time that I, the first national level event I ever won at was youth nationals. And I actually won with a plot hound, believe it or not. There you go. And, uh, and I didn't even realize it, but they gave lights to the category winners at mm. youth nationals. And those were the big night light battery packs, you know, mm. that were only six volt. And, yeah. uh, yeah. And I didn't realize it, but since I had won the category, I, I won one of these lights and I was just beyond excited about that. Like mm. it just took, it took that experience to another level. And I think that prizes can do that for kids, but it wasn't like everybody got a prize and it wasn't like we got a brand new dog box or, you know, anything like that. It was just a real treat to be able to win that light when I did at the youth nationals, but you know, I like to compete in those events just because I enjoyed the sport of coon hunting. Mm -hmm. And I think that is kind of lost in today's youth events. We need to make the youth events more about promoting the kids in a way that, that, uh, that grows their, grows them to a point where they can start practicing good stewardship. Right. And it, it shouldn't be about, the accolades and the titles and, and the wins that they can accrue. Cause I, I don't know. I don't know if you ever paid attention much to the youth circuit prior to uh, when UKC kind of reformatted the, the, the youth nationals event, but it was very common for, for kids that had very little experience to be handed off a national level dog, whether that was in um, the bench yeah. or the mm -hmm. night you yeah, know, that was yeah. kind of common practice. It, it was nothing to see a dog like Blue Creek Gage. I remember Blue Creek Gage hunted uh, and won the hunt at one youth nationals that I was at with with a with a handler that was related to uh, the people that owned him at the time. Which that's all fine and dandy, but now UKC makes uh, more of a concerted effort to make it more about the kid and their level mm -hmm. of experience and mm -hmm. where they, they mm -hmm. need to grow yeah. rather than the dog accruing right. wins at uh, youth events. Well, I see instances of people going to youth events with very small children and the dog wins the event. And I know that that child does not have a single clue what's going on out there. It's just along, you know, for the ride. I've all, but you know, I, and I don't mean to uh, disparage all youth events. And and the UKC stepped up that program after I left the Yep sure. program and things like that. But uh, excuse me, just a minute. Corey, this old gravelly voice is just about shot. <laughs> but but anyway, uh, what I've always thought was the ideal situation. It's, it's difficult to do, but if I could have the perfect deal, I would have a mentor's program yeah. where we could put a kid with somebody like yourself or an older hunter or somewhere where we could kind of work those, that those two individuals could work through a program together, a learning program with all facets 
Now, I don't know, when you were at UKC, did you ever go up to Wisconsin and, and see the program that Eric, Erica Froming and those people have up there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I was very fortunate. I got to travel uh, to Mineral Point uh, twice while I was working for UKC, and I got to go to the Heartland Classic specifically. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I I was very proud of that we started when I was at AKC was the Heartland Classic. I think that's a great event, and it moved to UKC, which was good for that event. It really sure. was, and yeah. it's done very, very well. But I know that they have quite an education program up there for the youth, and they also have education for wildlife officials and and people, you know, connected to the sport, maybe in a different way. And uh, Erica is a leader. I know that she's not involved now uh, because of a family and all that. But I thought that she and those that have helped her have done a a wonderful job up there. But I always thought that if we could establish a mentor program, and I know it's a slippery slope, you know, you're assigning a kid to be with an adult in a uh, at night situation out, and there's all kinds of things to be considered and liabilities and all that kind of stuff. But, man, if we could just devise a a mentoring program where these kids could take advantage of this experience, you know, it it would be awesome. Yeah, you know, I think I think you're you're spot on there. You know, something like that would be totally advantageous to the sport of coon hunting. The, The reality of the situation, though, is. You know, I don't, and like I said, I'm not trying to be critical of of youth programs or anything like that, because I love participating with the youth, and I love being able to talk to these kids that come out and and honestly have a passion for dogs that's that's greater or equal to mine. Um, But, you know, kind of the disappointing thing about it is, is I would be very, very curious to see the amount of children that come to an event like youth nationals that don't already have prior experience with coonhounds, whether they have family members that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that compete with hounds or, or whatever, you know, there, mm-hmm. I think the, the minority of children, um, that come to those, I, I think that the children that come to those kinds of events with zero knowledge are very slim and, mm-hmm. I, I would be very interested in seeing clubs, not not even just UKC, but clubs in general, work on more outreach programs mm-hmm. and and utilize youth events to where, um, you know, you have people from the, you know, kids from the community come that have never experienced the sport before. Yeah. You know, um, I think that we do a very good job of encouraging the children that we have in the sport. And they're very important themselves. I don't want to take anything away from, you know, the kids that are lucky enough to have dads and grandfathers and grandmothers that that compete with hounds. Um, But there are a lot of children out there who need respectable people in their lives. And and Mm. luckily for us, our sport's full of those kinds of people. Yeah. What Um, you're describing would be kind of akin to a Big Brother program that goes into the inner cities, you know, and, yeah. and, and helps these kids that otherwise will never have a chance, you know? Yeah. And, and, that, uh, and that's, and that's kind of where I'm coming from when I talk about, 
prizes. You know, um, it, that's it was great for a guy like me to go to youth nationals and win a brand new hunting light because I was the only coon hunter in my family. You know, my my parents they financially backed me, but they had their limits. You know, as far as sure how new my equipment was or whatever. So, you know, a guy like me coming in there and winning a light, that's great. You know, a kid like that deserves a light. You know, the, some of these kids that went on a regular basis and they're taking, they, they've won two or three dog boxes and, you know, <laughs> yeah. you see the lights they win for sale on Facebook, you know, oh, yeah. a couple of days after the event, that kind of thing's a little discouraging too. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's almost like, you know, I, and I hate to name names because of the guys that are doing these things are really their hearts in the right place and they really want to help kids and all. But it seems like that the formula is to see how much stuff you can get and pile mm -hmm. it up on the tables and bring the kids in. And they have a great big time and they get a bunch of stuff and they probably want a lot of that when they get home with it, it never gets used, you know, or, sure. or like you say, it gets sold by dad or, or uncle or whatever. But yeah, I, and I've never been a fan of participation uh, trophies in, in sports. And I'm really not a big fan of it in, uh, in youth hunting either. Uh, you know, as I look back at my own experience, I didn't have any participation trophies. Yeah. What few trophies I earned as a young hunter, I earned, you know, the dog did it. I learned that I needed dog power if I was going to beat these other guys. And I sure. learned the rules. I learned how to, you know, that I knew the rules. Because I came from a part of the country where not many people knew the rules, you know. Yeah. And, right. and uh, we always had a fight in the castle one night. This old, old guy's dog treated a coon. He never struck the dog. He never treated – the dog did treat a coon. But it was not within the rules, and he wanted to whip the whole cast because his dog treated the coon, and he ought to be the winner. Well, sure. you know, he he didn't grasp the concept of rules, you know. Right. But anyway, but that's always well, kind of been a, a yeah a little bit of a, a thorn in my side, I guess. Well, and I don't think that the youth programs are different than any other program or any other facet of the sport in the fact that it's indicative of the culture we live in, and, and it's definitely a reflection of what's going on in the world. And, you know, I and I'm not saying this as a, like a blanket statement that everybody's like this, but we, if we're going to be stewards of the sport, we need to put our focus not on ourselves, but on the dogs. And, uh, and maybe to a lesser degree, other people, right? So youth events should be about that. They should be about teaching these kids that the reason that we do this is either A, because we try to preserve the breeds of dogs that we appreciate and that we enjoy to hunt with, or B, we're doing this to preserve our sport, to preserve the natural resources that we've been given um, to steward over in this life, you know, and both of those concepts are greater than that kid. They're greater than you and I. And that gives, that helps give a child or, uh, you know, a lost or broken soul something to build their identity around. Right. And that's, and I think that's what we lack a lot in this country and in the world nowadays is we don't build our identities on things that are greater than ourselves. And, and that's kind of a, 
Yeah, problem. and I agree with you wholeheartedly. And as I think back, that word you used, identity, was one of the main things that drew me into the sport. Yeah. I wanted, I loved the dogs, and I loved to go hunting with my dad. That's where it all started for me. And when he went out the door, I wanted to be in his back pocket. That's just all sure. the way I was oh, as a kid, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I wanted, I got those magazines, and I read, you know, and I saw those pictures. And those guys were all wearing these Carhartt overalls. Man, I <laughs> wanted a pair of Carhartt overalls like you wouldn't believe. Hey, right. I lived in the coal mining country of southern West Virginia. No coal miner that I knew wore Carhartt overalls. They wore right. regular uh, bib overalls, Liberties or whatever, Big Smith or whatever the brand was. But these coon hunters wore these Carhartts, which I found out were like iron workers' uh, uh, overalls. And they didn't even sell them around there. And my dad, working up and down the Ohio Valley, building these power plants, had access to this. And for Christmas, he bought me a pair of Carhartt overalls. Oh, my god! That was the most fantastic gift that I could have possibly gotten because when I put those things on, I looked like one of those hunters in the magazine. Yep. So then I had the identity. You know, that was the thing. Yeah. And I belonged then to this big thing. And then when I went to the Southeastern Ohio Championship and hunted my dog and won sixth place, and I wore my car hearts, and I was in that big room with 106 entries that night, and I walked around up to, to get a soda or whatever, I was one of them. Sure. I felt like one of them. You know, I probably had my chest stuck out a little bit. I well, want to instill that in, you know, that sense of community, that's that sense of belonging, that this is my sport. This is what I've chosen. You know, I maybe the kid wants to wear a LeBron James jersey or whatever, yeah. you know, to but I want to wear what the coon hunters wear. You know, that, that sort of thing. Well, and one thing that we have to keep in mind is um, children are going to create an identity for themselves, whether we're helping them form that idea of identity or if they're doing it themselves or if they're doing it with their friends. And, and it ultimately boils down to acceptance. And I don't think that that is too far of a leap to apply that to a lot of grown men or grown women in our mm -hmm, sport. Mm -hmm. We, we are, you know, communicating creatures and we long for relationship. We long for acceptance. We long for affirmation. And that's yeah. what we need to be giving these kids when, when they come to a youth event and when they can learn to build an identity around being a plot hunter or being a coon hunter for, for, you know, more grander term, then they are well equipped for the future that's going to come before they know it. You know, then they can build their identity as a father. They can build their identity as a man in Christ or a woman in Christ. And, and, you know, that's mm -hmm. kind of been my, my whole story is, is uh, you know, I, I've, I was that coon hunter at one point in time, you know, I, I knew that if I died tomorrow, people were going to remember me as one hell of a coon hunter. 
Mm-hmm. And when I got married and I had my daughter, Eliana, um, you know, God kind of opened my eyes that, Hey, you know, this isn't who you are. You know, mm-hmm. this is part of who right. you are, but this, but there is so much more to who you are as an individual. And that's our, that's our goal. That's if me and Steve Fielder are going to work a youth event. We're just trying to show these kids that, Hey, this is a small part of who you are. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and build. And so that way they can go forth and build on that when they go home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hear handlers say from time to time, and I've heard them say it on this podcast, you know, this is the dog that got me to where I am. Okay. Well, where are you? You know, I mean, this sport, you've got to love it. You've got to want to be involved in it. It's got to be something you enjoy. I played men's league softball for many years when I was in Kalamazoo. Until nice. I got old and slow, and then I stopped. But <laughs> but I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. So that was my chosen recreation outside of hunting. You know what? So whatever you choose, if you choose coon hunting, you know, be good at it. Enjoy it. Take in all the residuals that are out there to the sport, but don't let it define you. As that's, that's you know. exactly it. And, you know, and, and, and to, to uh, make another point, if I can, you know, that gives a greater responsibility to those who are fortunate enough to find success in the sport. So the guys like Randy Smith and John Strickland and all, all of those big name coon hunters that we hear about winning at these big hunts, um, they have a much bigger responsibility on their, you know, that's thrust upon their shoulders than, uh, guys like me, you know, and it's because they're in the spotlight, they're in the media, they're in the things, they're in the things that these children and these young coon hunters, inexperienced coon hunters, however you want to put it, are, are consuming. And I don't want to throw John Strickland under the bus at all because I don't know John personally or anything, but I remember one thing that he said on the coverage of the Tournament of Champions when I was watching that this year. Um, and I'm sure he said it honest, like, you know, uh, it wasn't a derogatory point or anything like that. But the one thing I took away from the conversation he was having was he said that, Hey, you know, if competition coon hunting dries up tomorrow, I won't own a coon out. And that's fine. And well, you know, if that's what John wants to do, you know, and that, and that's fine. But we need people that are in the same positions as John Strickland or Randy Smith or Stephen Fielder to say, you know, I love this sport and it doesn't matter if this all goes away tomorrow, I'm going to be here and I'm going to be enjoying it and sharing it with other people. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we get into the sport for different reasons, you know, and certainly we're not all the same. And as long as those reasons are honorable, I, you know, I'm for whatever they want to do. I used to say, if you want to hunt, you know, field mice with a chihuahua, you know, you're a dog hunter and I'm in your camp and I want to support you, you know, but I hear what you're saying. I guess what we would like to, if we're heart to heart, Corey, we would like to be able to instill in the hearts of all of these people that come our way or walk in the doors of a coon club or onto the grounds at Automotive, a love 
for the sport like we have. I love for the outdoors. I love for the dogs. I love for the quarry, the game, the dog, the coon fools the dog or the dog fools the coon. Uh, We get to see the eyes. We get, uh, and part of it then becomes, uh, back in my day, picking up a phone and calling our buddies and bragging about what we did. Or today, (laughs) it's before it's even written down on the scorecard, it's already on social media, (laughs) you know. So we, our world is so fast, but you know, we've got a, a sport that we really love and we care about it. And you use such a great word steward, you know, when we're, when we're a steward of something, that means we're the watchman, we're the person, we're the guy that, that keeps count uh, yeah. of how well uh, the resources are used and are they being used wisely and are we being fair and equitable with our fellow man? And all of those kind of things all come into that. And steward is, stewardship is a wonderful word. We often use it in the faith community to talk about our support for God's work or for their church or for whatever. But we have to be good stewards, and we have to be good stewards of this resource, and we have to be good stewards of these hounds that we've been entrusted with and don't breed them indiscriminately or just to make a buck, you know, breed with the idea of improving, you know, making it better for the next generation. Well, Steve, if I can interrupt you just momentarily, um, I actually have a quote here um, from one of my favorite authors that I want to share that I think kind of flushes out your point uh, a little bit better. But uh, the quote is, regardless of whether we set out to make a mark in this game, we will make it in one way or the other. Now, do you know what author I'm talking about? Uh, (laughs) Well, I think, without being (laughs) self-serving, I think that's something that I wrote. Yeah, that is page 91 of Gone to the Dogs. And I have that highlighted in that book, and I think there's so much truth to that. Well, I was trying to grapple there for some somebody famous, and then you just <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, I've always felt that way. Um, yeah, you know, and way back, you know, I somebody said to me as a young person. You know, your integrity is something that no one can take away from you. Amen to that. The only way you can lose it is if you choose to give it away. Sure. And, you know, and, and that's a that's a rule. Have I made mistakes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I've always tried to to make that my my goal, you know. Just be, yeah. just be honest. Just be well, straightforward, and and, and and do it for the right reasons, you know. And by no means are are me and Steve Fielder sitting here talking condescendingly. You know, this oh. these are conversations that need to be had, and the and uh, your responsibility as the listener to this podcast is to just take it in and make that decision on how you're going to make your mark on the sport because it, you know whether you set out to make a mark on on the sport of coon hunting or not you probably will 
and that could mm-hmm. be good or bad. Mm-hmm. And integrity is going to be the driving force behind whether it's good or whether it's bad. Well, that's right. Those founders by way back in the 50s that sat down in Alexander City, Alabama, Robert Graves, John Carter, uh, uh, Blaine McGill, and some of those people uh, are, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't think it was Blaine McGill. It was, uh, uh, the name escapes me right now. But anyway, the whole point, when they created those rules, they put at the top honor rules. Yeah. You know, there had, because they had used a system where they had a subjective judge that went out and judged all the dogs and picked the one that he thought was the best, the one that had the best voice, the one that was the best cold trailer, the one that, you know, was fastest on track, quickest on tree, all that. But that wasn't working out as we know human nature got involved, the buddy system and all that. So they said, we have to put together a set of rules that will let the dogs, you know, judge themselves. I mean, they go in the scorecard and we'll just put down the scores as they do it. And it'll be an honor system. Right. And, uh, you know, so that that's always been the benchmark down through the years. And we've done a remarkable job with that system. I've often said, you know, when you go out and let a guy hunt by himself or go to his tree by himself, how would you, uh, how do you think the uh, the uh, PGA National would go if they, everybody's, okay, we're in the last hole, Tiger Woods is going to uh, play this hole, everybody go to the clubhouse and we're going to pull the shades. Nobody can look out on 18, <laughs> let him play that hole and let him bring his score in, and that's whether he wins or loses or depend yeah. on that score. It's just not done, you know, yeah. except right. in our sport. Mm-hmm. A- and uh, and there's pros and cons to that and arguments about it. And as I interviewed John Strickland that you spoke about, was just in the podcast here uh, last week or so, uh, you know, he uh, – he alluded to that, you know, the fact he liked the pro sport organization because the entire cast goes to every tree. And yeah. there's a lot to be said for that, I think, except for old men like me that walk themselves to death doing it. But, no, it's, uh, I don't know, we could we could go on and on forever, Corey. This has been a great visit. Believe it or not, you and I are seven or six minutes shy of two hours. Oh, that my we've goodness. been talking today. And yeah. uh, I know that there's got to be something burning down deep in your soul that I didn't let you say or you didn't get to say yet. Oh, my gosh. You know, um, I guess just in, in passing here, you know, I want to thank you in particular, not just for having me on the podcast, but for for creating this podcast. Um, you know, Obviously, coon hunting is moving into the 20, 22nd century here. I guess that's the century we're going into. I but, think so. I, um, yeah. But you know what? You, Steve, you probably are never going to understand completely the impact that that you coming on here and sharing uh, these conversations and all the information that comes through uh, this avenue with people. You're never going to fully understand the effect that has. And I think that it's great that we as coon hunters can get together and we can have open and honest conversation like this. 
and and just put it out there for people to digest, you know, and, and take mm-hmm. what they will from it. And sure. Um, and you've been doing this way longer than just the podcast era, you know, and, and your writing is synonymous with coon hunting. You're like an aficionado, <laughs> you know, of coon hunting. And and you know, the sport needs people like that. They need people like John Strickland, they need people like Corey Groover, if I will, you know, we sure. all kind of play Absolutely. our particular roles and and uh, mm-hmm. I want to encourage you and thank you for being willing to create this content for everybody. Well, you know, that that was kind of the goal from the very start, uh, Corey, sure. is to get as many voices heard as possible, varied, varied uh, positions, varied uh, degrees of experience and all, but, you know, all part of the community. And uh, when somebody uh, – messages me and says they enjoyed the podcast and they learned this or that or whatever that's you know that's the reward uh, yeah you know this uh, i i had a career you know i've been retired since 2011 but i do enjoy this and especially because i get to sit down and talk with you with you here for two hours and I have a great conversation about many aspects of it. And uh, publicly, I'll ask you to come back because I'd like to have you on. There's so many uh, different things that we can talk about. But I hope oh, yeah. the listeners have found some some pearls among uh, all this gravel that, we, yeah. <laughs> that we've thrown out here or chicken feed or whatever you want to call it. I I'm, hope so, Steve. I'm looking for big things out of this plot, and I want to get back with you and give me a, a, a progress report on how she's doing. Have you have you had her out yet? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because um, I've I've had her for about a week now, and I know that she she hasn't had much done with her just by the interactions I've had with her. But last night, I was uh, coming home from grabbing myself a little bit of supper, and I uh, was walking towards the house and i just happened to look out back past the dog kennel and i saw something moving around back there and it looked an awful lot like a raccoon you know just before dark here so Mm. um i said well you know what i'm i I, along with the plot hound i have a little uh uh, half elk hound and half blue tick dog that i've been working with squirrel hunting, and Mm -hmm. she uh she likes coons too so i figured well I haven't had the dogs out today, so we might as well uh, see what they can do with this. And, you know, that little plot female, she, I don't know what her experience level is, and I don't know that she's seen very many coons in her life, but she actually followed that track, and she opened on it, and she was sitting at the bottom of the tree, about a tree over from where that coon was at, and she just didn't know what to do. And yeah. that was uh, that told me enough about you know how, how easy it's oh, going yeah. to be yeah. to uh, yeah. to know what's going on. Sure. Thank God the elk hound was there to straighten her out. But uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's yeah. Well, it's always exciting to see the young ones come along. You know, and and it doesn't matter what the pedigree is or what your expectations are. They're all going to kind of develop at their own rate. The thing that I've always tried to to do in my own dogs was to give them opportunities as many as I can so that when that switch is ready to flip, you know, it will. And sure. and they won't do that in the kennel. They've got to right. be out there. And uh, Corey, it's been a delight to visit with you. You and I, both former UKC employees, maybe 
uh, I'll be already checked out of the old UKC employees uh, retirement home when you come along. <laughs> Maybe they'll have a picture or something on the wall. <laughs> but it's fun that, that we both work there on 100 East Kilgore Road and uh, there on the corner of Burdick Street and, and Kilgore and uh, and uh, went to work there every day and uh, got to talk to a lot of coon hunters and uh, and see the inner workings of a thriving registry. That was all fun. It wasn't all fun. Let me retract that. Yeah, it, <laughs> it was mostly fun. It was mostly fun. <laughs> the old saying is it's been real and it's been fun, but it hasn't been real fun. That's but, it. <laughs> but anyway, Corey, it's great to, to visit with I you. I appreciate your time too, Steve. And hopefully next time we can get into a little bit more of the UKC related stuff. But until then, we'll just keep keeping on. That's right. Well, if anybody asks you where Steve Fielder hanging out these days, tell him he's up around Greenville, Pennsylvania, up there trying to help uh, Corey Groover get this darn plot dog started. He's <laughs> he's gone to the dogs. Gone See you, to folks. The dog. See ya. <laughs>